I moved into a slum community with my wife and that was at the height of the HIV AIDS epidemic. And so we were seeing a lot of kids being orphaned. What struck me was that these kids who had lost their parents were then being taken away from everyone else that they knew and loved as well. And so what we began to think about was how are we spending our money as foreigners who are involved in NGOs and all of that kind of thing? Are we spending our money to keep children in their homes, in their families, or are we spending it to take them out of those homes? Welcome to the MindShift podcast. I'm Krish Kandaya. Around the world, there are around 5.4 million children in orphanages. Each year, millions of pounds and dollars are sent to support orphanages and thousands of people volunteer or visit them. The best evidence shows that orphanages are not good for children and there are far better ways for vulnerable children to be cared for. A mind shift is needed and that's why this podcast exists. Craig Greenfield is the director and CEO of Alongsiders, an action and advocacy organisation working in Cambodia. Craig and his wife moved to Cambodia into a slum during the HIV era. He saw a lot of orphans who were being taken away from their broader family. It made him think whether Western NGO money is being used to keep children in families or to take them away. Craig brings coalface on the ground experience of how to advocate on behalf of vulnerable children. Well, here we are. We're in Chiang Mai, Thailand, and we're speaking with Craig Greenfield, the founder of Alongsiders. Craig, nice to be with you. Great to be here too. So can you remember, I guess, one of your most earliest childhood memories? What is it that sticks in your mind from your own childhood? You know, when I was growing up, my parents practiced what I would call radical hospitality, welcoming those who are not always welcome. So I grew up pretty interesting household, actually. People had just come out of prison, foster kids, all kinds of refugees, and actually made a deep impact on me. I mean, these were the people of my childhood and my friends. That's fascinating, actually. My mum had a similar approach. People just randomly come to the door and they end up sleeping in our house and that was particularly powerful because she was an immigrant that wasn't necessarily treated very hospitably so that was her way of kicking back I guess against the system and that influenced us in terms of becoming foster carers would you say it was part of your calling into the work that you now do? It's been a huge part of my journey. In fact, I've tried to live that life of radical hospitality. We moved into inner city Vancouver for about seven years, uh, the most concentrated area of drug activity in North America. Our motto was cook too much food, invite too many people. And so we would have an open table every night, whoever showed up, homeless friends, friends in addiction. It was often around 40 people for dinner. It was amazing, just amazing times. I've been thinking about what children who grow up in institutions miss out on by missing out on a family. And actually, for many of us, our values in life, our kind of vision of what a home looks like is shaped by our own experiences. So I guess, again, children that live in institutions, that's another part of life that's taken from them. We're trying to figure out what will help people have a mind shift on the whole idea of institutional care, orphanages, children's villages. Can you remember what it was that kind of switched you onto this area of work? My journey, I mean, it starts with my parents fostering two Cambodian refugees, and that led to me moving to Cambodia in the year 2000. I moved into a slum community with my wife, and that was at the height of the HIV AIDS epidemic, and Cambodia had the fastest growing HIV rate in Asia. And so we were seeing a lot of kids being orphaned all around us and what struck me was that these kids who had lost their parents were then being taken away from everyone else that they knew and loved as well 
In Asian cultures, the extended family is so important. And so, yeah, you've lost your mom, you've lost your father, but you still have all your aunties, your uncles, your land, your heritage, your community. And so what we began to think about was how are we spending our money as foreigners who are involved in NGOs and all of that kind of thing? Are we spending our money to keep children in their homes, in their families, or are we spending it to take them out of those homes? So as you reflect on that, and you know you lived in Cambodia for a long time you became familiar with the whole extended family systems and approach why do you think orphanages ended up being set up I mean we were hearing it it was only in the 90s and noughties that orphanages became as prevalent as they are in Cambodia why do you think they were set up why didn't people just support those local extended families Uh, I think it's messier and at the end of the day one of the things that we need to talk about is control and as a Christian I subscribe to the fruit of the spirit and one of the fruits of the spirit mentioned in the Bible is a little word about control and it's self-control and we're not called to go around trying to control other people and sometimes that control can creep into the way that we do community development and orphanages are very tangible they're very limited they've got a ring around them a fence around them very easy to control what's going on whereas if we empower and say well this family is going to take care of this child this grandmother it's kind of out of our hands we have to play much more of a support role and sometimes we haven't been so good at doing that that's interesting i've thought of tangibility of orphanages as being a great fundraising tool that you can pay for bricks and mortar people come and visit it they can play with the children they can make the environment nice for them but i hadn't thought of control as another aspect but I guess you're right. The complexity and messiness of family-based care where you're trying to support families that might have a very different culture, set of values to you, means that I can't be in control. I can't make things the way that I want them to be. How do you think we resist that? Because, again, it's easy to spot that in other people and not see those same traits in my life. I like a bit of control. I like things being right and to suit my tastes or to fit my vision. How do you think we can overcome? What's the mind shift that's needed so that we have a less controlling approach to development and those kind of interventions. Well this really goes to the heart of a lot of the critique of white saviorism and the way that we intervene in other communities and I don't think the answer is to completely wash our hands and say okay then I won't engage Mm. but the answer is to come more as midwives and I love that biblical metaphor of the midwives who were not at the center of the story but they are basically helping others birth something that God has placed within them. That's a metaphor I like to draw on because that's our role is to be in a support role, Mm. to help others birth their visions, the things that God's given them to dream about Mm. and not to place ourselves at the center of the story. I like that and our listeners can't tell maybe they can guess from your voice that you are a white person who's talking about white saviour complex living in an Asian context. Mm. So how do you wrestle with that? I mean People might just come to some conclusions about you as a white person in Cambodia. Before you said anything, I guess you might be stereotyped or labelled as someone who's involved in that kind of white saviour approach. How do you live with that dissonance? At the end of the day, I'm not involved in what I do because of what people say or think about me. My task is to examine myself and to do the very best that I can before God. That's really the heart of where the Alongsiders movement emerged, was that the poor would help the poor, and as they already do, but would be empowered even more and strengthened even more in reaching out to their own neighbours. I want to dig into that with you. It sounds an amazing model of support and encouragement. And again, this tension. So it feels like within aid and development in general, there is an awakening around inappropriate 
and asymmetric power relationships between the West and the rest, sometimes called white saviour complex. We've seen it in the UK a lot with our big aid fundraiser, which is called Comic Relief, where celebrities will go and live in a slum or help children. And particularly Ed Sheeran was criticised for the way that he interacted with some kids on the street. And I guess the converse of that, the reaction of that is to withdraw from aid and development and think it's not working and it, it's not worth the investment and so we're seeing particularly with the rise in kind of nationalist populism this let's just sort our own lives out you know let's not give to global development let's put more policemen on our streets more money and investment into hospitals so that tension between not wanting to be colonial and patronizing of people versus not getting involved at all. As you travel around the world and inspire people to play their appropriate role, what have you found is helpful to people to kind of get the right balance? Well, obviously just a posture of learning and humility. You know, we go into contexts where we hold power. And if we're unaware of that power that we hold and the power that access to resources holds, then we're going to be acting in ways that can really uh, disempower. And so humility and learning, you know, we spent our first few years really immersed in the slums, learning the language, learning the culture. My wife is Cambodian, so that helped. But we just need to go with that posture. Not that we know everything, we have all the expertise and all the resources. But there is a lot that can flow out of that when we learn first. That's really helpful. And might have helped when the whole push towards orphanages and institutional care first arrived in many nations. They are Western exports as far as my understanding of history leads me. Whether they're from British missionaries or American missionaries or Australian missionaries, we seem to have brought a lot of cultural baggage with us and we didn't do the learning. We didn't come often with a spirit of humility, but we definitely wanted to help. Mm. Tell us a little bit more about the model that Alongsiders brings. How are you involved in the kind of care reform sector? Well, one of the things that I noticed is many of my neighbours were being orphaned was at the same time the church was booming, growing in Cambodia and around the non-Western world in general. And the church is young, very young. Cambodia's population is two out of three are under the age of 30. And so you see those youth bulges all around the world in non-Western nations. And we actually know that a country with a youth bulge is four times more likely to erupt in civil war. And it's one of the factors that's going on around the world. You know, young people have always been on the forefront of social change throughout history. They're idealistic. They've got energy. They've got more time. So really the idea was birthed, what if we were to mobilize young people around the world to walk along those who walk alone, mm. to walk alongside orphans and vulnerable children, mentor them, disciple them in Christian language, but to really come alongside those children who may have lost their parents but are living in the community, not just orphans, vulnerable children, and be that friend, be that older brother, that older sister that every person needs. Amazing. Tell us how that works in practice. So we're not talking about the kind of volunteerism of Western teenagers coming to volunteer in an orphanage, play with kids for a summer and then leave again. What does the model look like on the ground? We have what we call the proximity principle and that is that we walk alongside those who we are close to. So we ask them to choose and they choose their own little brother, little sister, which is an important part of it because if you're an 18 year old and you've had to you know, pray and decide who should be your little brother, you're going to be much more committed to that relationship than when you were matched up by an NGO. So it's not about volunteerism at all. So they choose a child that's within a one kilometer radius of their house. Whether they live in the slum or a rural village or just the city, they're choosing someone. We ask them to have a bias towards the poor. I believe God has a bias towards the poor. 
And so we ask them to have a bias towards those who are vulnerable. They could be a rich kid, but their parents are going through a divorce or some kind of struggle in the home. So have a bias towards those who are struggling as you look to who you should reach out and walk alongside. And once someone has identified a young person that might be vulnerable within their proximity, what does it look like kind of week by week? So it's very relational. It's relationships that transform lives. They walk alongside, they take them out for some street food. You know, eating is such a central part of Asian cultures, Mm. you know, eating together, hanging out together. We also provide once a month a comic book for them to read through together. And that Mm. takes them through all kinds of issues, very holistic, you know, looking at addiction, fear, honesty, you know, all kinds of things that are helpful for that child. They may not be getting that at home. Mm. And so a little bit more of kind of values-based education that comes through their mentor. Mm, Amazing. There's a whole bunch of questions coming around my head. One is that there's been a really helpful movement away from Western children going to visit on a school trip or a youth group outing orphanages and children's villages. And we're looking for alternatives Mm. to say instead of that, we don't want you to not do anything. Mm. So the idea of in your own proximity, finding someone that you could get alongside and help, you don't need to travel the ends of the earth in order to be helpful to someone in need would be a really useful model but I guess in some western context if you're talking about an 18 year old getting alongside a 9 or 10 year old there's a whole bunch of child protection issues and help us figure that out what does that look like in a western context do you think well i mean we've built child protection in through the whole process and this movement has spread to 16 countries around Mm. asia and africa and so we're dealing with all kinds of different contexts the child themselves are giving permission they decide that they want to be a part of it the guardians Mm. the pastor one of the very first lessons is actually teaching the child the child helpline it's called good touch bad touch and so um built into the very fabric of it Mm. is you know the dignity of a child and the rights that they have we're actually piloting this in Holland and in the US at the moment so it's a leap to Western countries and we do have to look at more of the child protection issues around that but what a shame if we can't come alongside our neighbours we've got to figure this out yeah we do you're right child protection isn't the only framework that we can use when engaging with young people but sadly because the church doesn't have a great child protection record There are lots of contexts in the West and probably elsewhere where stuff has been kind of brushed under the carpet. So, yeah, it's getting that right balance. Yeah, I mean, I actually look at it flipped around as well. We do have to do everything we can to protect and teach about protection. Mm. But what we've found, and we now have thousands of young people around the world doing this, is that actually many, many of the children they're walking alongside are in abusive situations. And there's simply not enough social workers or NGO workers Mm. or government workers to follow that up or even know about it. But they're alongsider knows. Mm. And so we've never had a case of abuse from an alongsider, Mm. but we've had hundreds. I mean, I would say thousands of children that are in abusive situations Mm. who have been helped by their alongsider. And so what we're literally creating is a movement of young people who are trained in child protection Mm. and are out there. They've been trained to spot the signs of abuse. We have animations we use to train them, flip charts. They're trained to identify trafficking situations and they know how to respond. And for them, it's simply report, report, report. Mm. That's all we say. If you see this, report it to us. We'll follow it up.
That's great. That's really helpful. I think young people do need an advocate that can help them understand what's happening to them, and another young person can definitely really help with that. As you equip young people to come alongside people in their proximity who might be at risk of entering an orphanage without the proper support, what are you identifying about the way that we might change institutional care? You know, you're raising up a generation of people that have a very different approach, but from that experience, what do you think the wider care reform needs to be learning from the young people that you're working with? At the end of the day, we thrive in relationship. And that's one of the reasons why institutions are falling short, because you have staff that are transitioning in and out. There's not the ratios, there's not that relational commitment that's going to take, you know, when you're an adult, you want to be able to look back on your childhood family. Mm. And so if we can bolster relationships... All of us have something to offer in that area. And I think very often the foster care and adoption movement have talked a lot about foster care and bringing children into families. But there's so many others of us, and this is what we wave the flag for in Alongside Us, is how can the grandmas in the church become grandmas to foster children? How can the youth become alongsiders? How can the guys down at the church become uncles? You know, we need all of that. Yeah, in the charity I help found and we talk about it takes a whole church to foster or adopt a child and you get that extended family support around the carers but also around the children I Mm. think can be really powerful Mm. and actually within a lot of western fostering contexts there's the concept of the independent visitor who is an approved government mechanized person as it were who plays that role of an advocate they're not supposed to be related to them they are supposed to be just another reporting opportunity or just a friend or a mentor that could kind of assist so that may be another kind of touch point for the alongsider movement yeah and as we begin to sow seeds in europe it'll be very interesting to see what will unfold in that area fascinating i always give people a chance to bring up anything that they really want to say that we haven't had a chance to talk about is there anything else that's on your mind you think people ought to be knowing about? Um, You know, I think we can all be alongsiders. That's my heart, is who can we come alongside? Uh, It may not be an orphan or a vulnerable child, but it may just be, you know, a lonely older woman in the house next door. So that would be my encouragement, is who can you be an alongsider to today? Craig challenges us to see vulnerable children as our little brothers and sisters. That family way of thinking is so important because children thrive in families. That's why we started the Homecoming Project and would love for you to join our homecoming journey. Just visit homecomingproject.org to find out how you can be part of the solution to the global challenge of orphanages. We'd love to continue this conversation with you. So don't forget to tune in to the next edition of the Mindshift podcast.